Welcome to Writers Forum, a weekly presentation of WRBHFM. I'm Sherry Alexander, and this week we're talking to Steve Luxemburg, author of Separate, the story of Plessy v. Ferguson and America's journey from slavery to segregation. Welcome to Writers Forum, Steve. Thank you, Sherry. Thanks for having me. You're a journalist. I am. Washington Post. Indeed. Award-winning, Pulitzer Prize-winning work. Um, well, of my reporters, I don't get the Pulitzer Prize myself. Well, but <laughs> you're the you're the man. Um, you're from Detroit originally. Yes, I am. And Long went, way from New Orleans. And went to Harvard. As good as it gets. You've worked on other newspapers. Um, I, I, before we talk about your new book, I just want to mention Annie's Ghost, which is a book sure. you wrote, what, 10 years ten ago? 10 years ago. Tell us about Annie's Ghost. I found it fascinating. Well, I think every family has some stories, if not secrets, as my family had a secret. My mother kept hidden the existence of a sister, and that didn't emerge until after she died. We had an inkling of it before she uh, passed away. But we were surprised when we got a letter from a cemetery where... My mom had been uh, getting annual reminders to plant flowers in the spring, and we were expecting to see two graves, but we saw three. And the third grave had a name, and that was Annie, her sister. And so I went on the, the journalistic hunt. The, the hunting part of me got, got interested, and I wanted to find out about Annie, her life, and why my mom would keep that secret. Well, she was disabled. And um, it ended up, the story uh, w that impressed me was you did so much research into the hospital uh, where Annie had spent most of her life, Eloise. I had never heard of that. Well, it's not usual for a psychiatric institution to have such a prosaic name, Eloise, but it was... It needed a name, and the postmaster in that era in the 1890s, when it first came into uh, a large existence, it had been around for a while as a poorhouse, um, they decided that, well, let's just name it after his daughter. And in the foyer of the, of the main administration building, there was a photograph, of, I mean, a, a portrait, an oil painting of Eloise and her dog. Uh, that, that greeted you as you entered. So my, my aunt was physically disabled, as you said, but she was also later in her life diagnosed as having sort of a general schizophrenia when she was about 19, 20. And she entered Eloise and never, never left until the end of her life when she was deinstitutionalized briefly until she died six months later. Well, it was just a fascinating story. But, of course, we're here today to talk about your new, wonderful new book, Separate. And it's basically the story, as you say, of Plessy v. Ferguson, but you approach it a little differently from some of the other books. I think I've read them all. <laughs> um, you and me both. <laughs> well, I haven't read them as carefully as you, of course. Um, <clears throat> but what made you decide to write this book? You know, I've been a journalist now for 40 years, and frequently, I, I know in your career, you I, I suspect you either work on or you're involved in stories that have race as some factor in the story. And I certainly had done that in my career in Baltimore, at the Baltimore Sun and at the Washington Post. But, you know, in about 2012, as I was hunting around for a new book, I felt like I really did not understand what I consider to be our national conversation. We're either talking about race or we're avoiding talking about race. 
And so I wanted uh, to find a way to tell that story in the 19th century and the roots of racial separation, which is at the basis of the Plessy case, and of course at the basis of a case that is uh, a New Orleans story, thoroughly a New Orleans story. Uh, but I also was, as a, young, as a young reporter, I was in awe of a book by a New York Times uh, reporter named Anthony Lewis called Gideon's Trumpet which was about the case Gideon versus Wainwright, a Supreme Court case that we know today because it gave indigent defendants the right to legal counsel. And I thought, wow, what a great way to tell a story about America. And I thought, maybe one day I'll have a story to tell about America. So this is my effort to match Anthony Lewis's Gideon's trumpet. It took you a long time. <clears throat> it took me about five years to do the research and writing. Um, that was not what I expected, but the deeper I got into it, and you, you mentioned my different way of telling the story, which is to immerse myself in the lives of the people who both bring the case, those are a New Orleanians group, who argue the case, lawyers, including some from the North, uh, the justices who decide it, but also the resistors whose shoulders Plessy stands on. Uh, I wanted to understand and I wanted to communicate in, in, in my story that people uh, rarely operate on their own when they're opposing injustice. They have a group with them or representing them. In this case, Plessy is a volunteer to start the case. Uh, the committee of New Orleanians who are behind him who called themselves, uh, no PR person would ever allow anybody to do this today, but their letterhead was the Committee to Challenge the Constitutionality of the Separate Car Law. The Separate Car Law was that enacted in 1890 by the Louisiana legislature, mandating that uh, passengers, white and colored, those were the words in the law, be given uh, separate accommodations. Well, we know it, most of us that haven't studied it, we just know it. It's the separate but equal case. It's the case where the U.S. Supreme Court okayed um, accommodations on the train as long as supposedly they were equal for and, blacks and whites. And ironically, at least I think it's ironic, the words separate but equal do not appear in the majority decision, which is noteworthy because we not only know it that way, but... Frequently a shorthand, I, I, I have a Google alert that brings me anything Plessy. And my brethren in, in journalism often say, this is the case where the Supreme Court created the doctrine of separate but equal and made it the law of the land. And I kind of object to that characterization because they didn't create a doctrine. And of course, if you're creating a doctrine, wouldn't you use the term separate but equal? And what they did instead was to endorse a custom that had been around for more than 50 years in public transportation, and it began in the North, not in the South. I, I love that you really focus enough on that to, to bring it to people's attention. I'm a Southerner, and I've lived in Boston, and I felt when I was there that people think um, prejudice is only in the South, and you trace a lot of prejudice in the North 200 years ago. Well, you know, as I say, some people like to talk about uh, this as black history or African-American history, and that was an important point to make back in the days when we had no focus on the history of African-Americans. 
But today, I would say this is not black history. This is our history. And in order to, uh, to bring that to life, I wanted to make clear that the, the shame of the South, and the, and the South should have some shame for its many versions of racial oppression, is accompanied by the shame of the North. And the North was the, the birthplace of separation. That's the word they used in the 19th century. That's why I use it. They did not use the term. segregation. They did not use the term segregation. Um, and so if you picked up a newspaper account of the debate over whether to separate passengers was a good idea, you would read the term separate and separation. Well, we also talk a lot about Jim Crow, and a lot of people, we have no idea where that came from, that expression, Jim Crow laws. And I can't say for an absolute certainty or a fact that I know where it came from, but the first use of it that I turned up through the power of the Internet, which you can now search on that term in newspapers and some newspaper database, was, to my surprise, uh, October 12th, 1838, in the Salem, Massachusetts Gazette, uh, which was describing uh, an altercation on the newly opened Eastern Railroad, only open a month, in which two drunken white sailors were behaving so badly that they were banished to the Jim Crow car because the Eastern Railroad was one of three in Massachusetts that decided upon opening that they would separate their passengers. Now, five did not. So immediately from the birth of the railroad, you had a disagreement about how to handle passengers. Well, and something else that you brought out that most of us wouldn't ever think of, the railroads really didn't want this because they didn't have to want to have to have separate cars. That's a lot of expense. Well, as the railroad developed, particularly in the South, um, there was a division. I mean, if you were in Georgia, you ran into railroads that did want to separate. That was their values. Uh, but in Louisiana, there was a mix of opinion. And Plessy uh, and his team, the team behind him, the committee, chose the East Louisiana Railroad for his arranged arrest. And Plessy, uh, uh, the, the railroad was in on it because they really did not want to run a separate car. You have to realize that there weren't as many black passengers as there were white passengers. I hesitate to use the word black in this case because in New Orleans and in Louisiana, of course, you had an entire spectrum of color. And one of the issues in the case was, What's white? What's black? What's mixed race? And if you are of a certain, quote, percentage, which is a terrible way to talk about anybody's heritage, uh, how close do you have to get to zero of, uh, to be considered white? And that was one of the ways in which the Louisiana um, debate occurred, and the lawyers in the Plessy case decided to choose somebody like Plessy because he looked white, he could pass for white, and he had to tell the conductor, who, of course, was in on the, on the arrest, that he was a man of color. Well, that's another good point that you make. You say, really, this case could have only come out of Louisiana because of we're kind of unique racially, especially around New Orleans. Yes, and, and I, I think, you know, in later years, uh, in the mid-20th century, when segregation was being challenged, Jim Crow was being challenged, uh, you had the development of... Uh, people of color in Savannah or uh, in South Carolina and Virginia who had more wealth and, and more education. And so there could be an, an organized, concerted effort to challenge these unjust laws. But in the 1890s, New Orleans was the unique city. Uh, and that's because the free people of color 
whose whose ancestors had been in New Orleans since the time when it was French and Spanish, they had never been enslaved. Uh, the people who brought this case were the descendants of people who were free at the time of the American takeover. And so they had already accumulated a fair amount of wealth. Many of them were highly educated, and so they could develop the kind of legal strategy that you would have to have to bring this case to the Supreme Court. Not an easy journey. You don't, you don't get to the Supreme Court by snapping your fingers. You have to have a plan and a strategy, and in this case, their strategy worked, although, of course, they lost the case in the end. Well, a term that we use a lot is creoles of color. Um, Creoles originally, of course, being anybody you know who settled here originally from Spain or France. Well, Creole means in Portuguese, it just means native-born. And so one of the debates before the Civil War was Creoles who were white, who were native Louisianians, didn't want Creoles of color to use that term. And so, of course, that uh, made Creoles of color want to use that term because they didn't want to be told what to call themselves. Well, the committee, um, the work of the committee was uh, several free men of color. We'll we'll use that term um, and um, Martinet and the Citizens Committee and so on. It's a little, to me, reminiscent when we say Citizens Committee. I think of the Citizens League and the white, <laughs> the white people who... Um, I think it was important to people of color to use the word citizen frequently to attach to themselves since the Dred Scott decision of 1857, the Supreme Court decision, said that people of color could never be citizens of the United States, and that was overturned by the 14th Amendment. Well, that's, what, that's when all this takes place. Of course, we've had what some people call the Civil War. Um, I've heard it called the invasion of the uh, North Americans. The the War of Northern Aggression. (laughs) Yes, right, the War of Northern Aggression. Um, So so you talk about these, um, the committee and their work, but interesting, on the actual case itself, you're focusing on three white guys. Well, you know, I'm focusing on Martinet, Louis Martinet, who was the head of the committee, is a major character in the last third of Separate, the book. Uh, But the three white guys that you mention are the two justices who are on opposing sides. This case was decided seven to one. Now, of course, our mathematicians out there will say, what happened to the ninth justice? And there was one justice who did not participate. Uh, But the seven to one decision, and one of the fun facts I like to throw out at my audiences when I'm talking about separate is, so how many of those justices were from the South and how many from the North? And you would think, of course, that immediately, well, they must have been at least a good portion of them were Southerners. But because of the Civil War, because of... uh, the lack of uh, the, the Republicans didn't, the Republicans were the party of anti-slavery and they often appointed justices who were from the North. In 1896, it was six out of the seven justices were from the North and the only dissenter was a Southerner, the only one who'd ever owned slaves in his lifetime and who had been a slaveholder's son and his name was John Marshall Harlan of Kentucky. So that's the, those two. And then the third is Albion Terget, who was the lead lawyer for the Plessy team, and he and Martinet developed the strategy that they used to bring the case to the Supreme Court. Well, it's fascinating. You weave the stories together, um, and I, for one, had no idea. I always looked at Justice Harlan as this uh, memorable the words he spoke were so beautiful, and I just pictured him as being some kind of uh, rock star of unprejudice. But the fact is, 
He had owned slaves, um, and, and he married a woman, and they got she got slaves from her mother-in-law or something? For well, he married, an, uh, so this is a time to remember that the Ohio River, for much of its uh, journey, is the dividing line in the 1850s between North and South. If you are looking for, uh, uh, to capture somebody who has escaped their enslaved conditions, you might go from Kentucky, where they were living, to Ohio, where they were now trying to be uh, living in freedom, or they had gone north to Canada. So Harlan was living in uh, Frankfort, Kentucky, just a stone's throw from from what would be considered the the north uh, in Ohio. And he was uh, traveling by steamboat to court a woman from Evansville, Indiana, about 70 miles away. And uh, when when they married, uh, her family was uh, dismayed that she had married a slaveholder's son. But when she arrived in Frankfurt, she really understood that her life had changed when she was given the gift, a wedding gift, of a slave by her her mother-in-law. That's unbelievable. And um, we, obviously, we've got like seven or eight minutes. Um, You tell the story so beautifully. um, And when you get to the conclusion, the holding of the case, and this beautiful language that many, many people, you know, have embroidered on their walls or whatever. Um, But it might have come from Turgé's brief. Is that what I... Well, Turgé's... So briefs are... It's interesting. When you read a Supreme Court case, you usually are reading the decisions, the, the ruling or the dissent, if there is a dissent, and you're reading the briefs. That's a terrible way to understand the story behind what actually happened because they're focused on the law and they're focused on making a winning argument. They often leave out facts. So the Supreme Court had no idea that Plessy was a volunteer to get arrested and it had been arranged with the railroad's help. Um, Harlan, Harlan at the time had written uh, several previous dissents. He was the, the only dissenter in several civil rights cases. The main one being an 1883 case that overturned the Civil Rights Act of 1875, which provided for equality across all kinds of public transportation and public places. Um, That 1883 dissent was published widely in newspapers. The 1896 dissent in Plessy, for which he became known later on, was not published in any newspapers. You said even the case didn't get it. No, it wasn't a big deal because everybody, like, you know, we in the news business, we like surprises, we like things that are different. This man was an expected, dog. I'm sorry, man, man bites. bites dog. Yeah, we, this is a, a case where everybody expected the court to rule against Plessy, and, and they did, and so it was, quote, less newsworthy. It became newsworthy again in 1954 when the, when the Supreme Court ruled in Brown versus Board of Education that separate could never be equal. And so so the scholars and newspaper people went back and looked at Harlan's dissent, and he got more attention, you know, 50 years after his death for his dissent than he ever got when he wrote it. Well, those beautiful words, our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. In respect of civil rights, all citizens are equal before the law. That's the... Um, yeah, and Harlan's a complicated guy. You know, he... He borrows the term itself, our Constitution is colorblind, from Turgé's brief. But the rest of it is consistent with what he had been saying for 20 years beforehand. Now, this is a a remarkable evolution. Uh, Harlan went from being a slaveholder's son and a pro-slavery candidate to being the ringing dissenter in in the civil rights cases in Plessy. But in the civil rights uh, cases and in in Plessy, he makes clear in, in his language that he believes that the 
white race as the superior race. But he says it doesn't matter. Our Constitution now requires, because of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, that we have equality under law. And if we're going to be the superior race, then we have to act decently and honorably. But some people think that that uh, is kind of backing into the uh, uh, idea of equality. And why didn't he just say forthrightly that there is no such uh, distinction between white and black people, but he's a, he's a man of his time. And also something, I guess we don't want to get too technical, but not just equality. You talked about um, there was a property right in being considered white. Well, it's not technical. It's actually kind of a wacky argument that I like to talk about because, so you're a lawyer and you're trying to present a case to the Supreme Court, a very different Supreme Court let's tell our, our listeners, because we now think of the Supreme Court, immediately you think, 5-4, division, conservative, liberal. But in the 1890s, these are nine white men who all are supporters of property rights. And if you're a lawyer trying to win the argument before a court in which 90% of the Supreme Court's rulings in the 1890s were unanimous, 90%, I counted them. And there were some terms where there was never a 5-4 decision, not, not one. So here, Turgeet is trying to get to a 5-4 decision. Now, it's, that's the best he can hope for. He's not getting to 9-0. And he needs to give them a winning argument, so he's trying to give them a property rights argument. And basically, he says, your race is your property. Your reputation is dependent upon your race. And if you can pass for white, what right does a conductor on a railroad train have of depriving you of that property right without due process of law, due process being the 14th Amendment term? You need testimony, you need evidence, et cetera. And the court did not buy this argument, but <laughs> it, it was an attempt to be, to be a winning argument. But it's, the reason I call it wacky is not because it doesn't have some sense or logic, but had the court bought it, you still would have had separation. You just would have had a car filled with whites and people who could pass for whites, but the people who could not pass for white would still be in a separate car. So I don't know why he thought that argument was particularly useful. Well, it came in handy, as you say, after 1890, um, finally, pro property did not become the be-all and end-all, or we never would have had the New Deal and so on. You, you stress that um, this only could have taken place in uh, New Orleans, in Louisiana, because of our unique racial um, makeup and in recent years, I guess we were celebrating the centennial of the case. Um, we, we've come to know the descendants of Plessy and Ferguson. Well, when I spoke at the New Orleans Public Library in February, I had greeted a, a group of mixed-race uh, people who were sitting in the first couple of rows, and it turned out that they were all descendants of Plessy. There's, it's a large, large family. And I was, I, I'm not generally nervous when I'm speaking, but I was nervous that night because I was sure they knew the case and the, and the, the background better than I did. But it turned out that that wasn't true. My research had given me a little bit of an edge, and they loved the talk, and they loved the whole night. And so it was really a, a fun night to be there. Well, and Plessy and Ferguson have... Um the, some descendants have created a foundation here in we, New Orleans. Yeah. Yes, we've um, we've put up a plaque. We have Plessy Park now, and there's a plaque. We renamed a school, the Plessy School. Yeah, Phoebe Ferguson is one descendant from the from the Ferguson side. So Ferguson was the judge in the case, Louisiana judge originally, and Keith Plessy is her counterpart from the Plessy family, and they're doing lots of good work. 
Well, and when we, when you're guiding people around the city, as some of us are want to do sometime, we have um, Plessy's Tomb in St. Louis Number One. That's right. We have, I guess it was his original tombstone, maybe, that's in the Cabildo. We have Ferguson's tomb, although it's a different family name on it. Um, that's One of the Lafayette. fun facts about, about Homer Plessy, so he was 29 years old at the time, a shoemaker, when he volunteered to be the person arrested in this case. And it's important to understand they had to get him arrested, and that was a risk. But the reason they had to get him arrested rather than bringing a civil suit for damages or for violation of civil law is, is that the Separate Car Act had done something very unusual. It had criminalized riding a train. You could be charged with a crime for riding the wrong car. So that's, they wanted to overturn that law, so they had to get him arrested under that law. But one of my fun facts that you'll read in Separate is that in 1900, when the census taker came, and his choices were B for black or W for white, not M for mulatto, although that had been in, in, uh, a possibility in previous censuses. So Plessy was B for black in the 1900 census. In the 1910 census, he was B for black. But in the 1920 census, he was W for white. So this racial confusion is right there in the censuses. And I'm sure that Turgeet, had he been alive, would have been delighted in seeing this confusion, which is what he was trying to say when he was arguing the case before the Supreme Court. Well, it's a wonderful book, um, and you might not think so, you know, covering a Supreme Court case, um, but you, you really make it come alive. Uh, the New York Times, I guess, maybe for the Washington Post, you're... I'm, I'm allowed to, to be delighted by a New York Times <laughs> right. review of my own book. Because they were delighted by you. <laughs> um, the reviewer, James Goodman, said, Segregation is not one story, but many. Luxembourg has written his with energy, elegance, and a heart aching for a world without it. Um, we want to thank you. We, you've been listening to Writers Forum, and we want to especially thank our guest this week, um, who I believe mainly is here in town. You're going to cover the uh, go to the Louisiana Book Fest. Yeah, I'm I, up in Baton Rouge this weekend. Uh, I guess when we're taping this, uh, we we won't air it until it's passed. But good luck at the Book Fest. Um, he's the author most recently of Separate, the story of Plessy v. Ferguson and America's journey from slavery to segregation. I'm Sherry Alexander for WRBH.